Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Father, that uh, though we can wander off, and often do, and though we can get caught up in theologies and debates and discussions about what things mean, what was intended, what theological position or standard is the most accurate, Lord, I'm so thankful that we can always just come right back to Your Word. Well, tonight we want to check our hearts, Lord, uh, against Jesus. We would like, Lord, to see Jesus tonight more clearly. Because we believe that by seeing Jesus, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, by looking for the coming of Jesus, that we are purified and we are sanctified. And our lives are clarified, Father, in terms of what matters. And I pray for that tonight. As we study now in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a large cast of characters in the book of Mark, but especially you will note in Mark 15. And as I read over the chapter and thought about this, I was tempted to spend some extra time tonight illuminating each one of their stories. And while there will be a little bit of that, God really redirected me this week. In fact, I have most of my notes written out and I had to go back to it. Because while there are a lot of players in this drama, there's only one Jesus. And we have to be reminded, I have to be reminded constantly, that when I go to the Scriptures, I go looking for Jesus. I want to see Him. I don't think we can focus too much on Jesus. And so I encourage you and I invite you to do that tonight. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Not a theological system but a person, God in the flesh. So let's, let's look for Jesus. I want you to, to keep your eyes on Jesus, focus on what He does, how He acts, what He says, because this is truly all about Him. We're going to begin with Jesus before Pilate. And if you're jotting down notes, there will be seven, eight, or nine of them tonight. The first one is Jesus before Pilate. That's where we begin. Mark moves very quickly from the unjust trials of the high priest and the high priest's father-in-law and the Sanhedrin now quickly into the presence of Pilate. He doesn't waste a whole lot of time with those trials. Verse 1, chapter 15. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. Now, shepherds among us, guys, we got to be careful of emergency meetings. <laughs> because anytime we're in the place of emergency, oftentimes we get ahead of where the Lord is. There are very few actual emergencies. Oh, there are some. But typically when we think there's an emergency, really it's it's better a time for us to pull back a little bit, pray and wait on the Lord. Well, they held an emergency consultation here. And binding Jesus, they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. And then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now, according to the Roman historian Philo, the regime of Pontius Pilatus 
Pontius Pilate, as we call him, was marked by corruption, by violence, by brutality, by continual executions without trial. Jewish people were constantly being executed by Pilate. He, he really had a problem in his, in his way of governing. And he has quite a history, and I, I had a long, several pages of notes of this. We're not going to go into his history, because it's really not important. Just know this, and you can look it up, you can study the background of Pontius Pilate. He was the fifth procurator of Judea from the years about 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. In that decade, it was a very problematic decade, and suffice it to say that Pontius Pilate was on thin ice as this chapter opens up. In fact, very soon after this, something will happen historically that causes Pilate to be recalled to Rome where eventually he will commit suicide. So he's on thin ice politically. Note that, on thin ice politically. A poor tracker record with the Jews, and his job is on the line, and so he is in Jerusalem for the Passover. Not to celebrate it. He is there to keep an eye on it. He cannot afford any more mess-ups. He lives typically up in Caesarea Maritima, which is Caesarea by the Sea. It's a beautiful uh, Mediterranean uh, seaside town, seaside city, built up by Herod, had a beautiful palace there, a palatial estate, and that's typically where the procurators would stay, except for significant events such as Passover. He makes his way down or over to Jerusalem to keep an eye on things because, again, he's on thin ice politically and the Jewish people were on fire nationally or nationalistically. It's Passover. Passover is the time of recognizing and remembering the Jewish deliverance from an oppressor, Egypt. Well, the oppressor now is Rome. And anytime you get a lot of Jewish people together to celebrate their deliverance when they're under oppression at the time, you got to be careful. The Jewish people were lit up. The time was ripe for revolts. They had already revolted a number of times against Rome and would again. Plus, the numbers in Jerusalem for Passover were absolutely huge. Josephus tells us that he actually counted on a particular Passover, 256,000 lambs were sacrificed. Now, if you spread that out to, say, a lamb per every 10 people or so, a lamb per family, if it's one per 10 people, that's 2.56 million Jews in tiny Jerusalem for Passover, packed in and around the town. A national festival, a national celebration, a holiday, remembering their deliverance, and add in one more potentially combustible item to this hotbed, news of the Jewish Messiah was on the grapevine. There's a Jesus, there's this Jesus of Nazareth, and he's going to be there for Passover. You've got to keep an eye on him because the people are following him in droves. Pilate, no doubt, had heard about Jesus. So, Trouble politically, Jews excited nationalistically, the Messiah or supposed Messiah showing up religiously, spiritually, and here he is now, standing before Pilate. And Pilate is amazed. But not by some fiery rhetoric. Not amazed at some intense prophetic gaze or ignitable charisma. Pilate is amazed by the composed silence of this Jesus. He barely speaks a word. Pilate asks, no doubt sardonically, are you king of the Jews? 
And Jesus answers in the Greek, Sulego, which doesn't mean you take a toy company to court. <laughs> Sulego simply means you said it. Are you the king of the Jews? You said it. Is that an admission? What? What? Did, it's a perfect answer. You said it. So Pilate's confused. Pilate could care less about Jesus upsetting the Jewish people. But if he truly was claiming to be king for the Jews, well, now we're talking insurrection and he can't abide that. Jesus just says, you said it, and then remains silent to all the accusations, and Pilate doesn't know what to do with him. He doesn't really want to kill him because honestly, he's looking at this man and the other gospel writers tell us he found nothing wrong with him. He was innocent. There's nothing to these charges. Pilate also could tell the Jewish people were angry with him. So why would Pilate want to give in to that? And he just doesn't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus doesn't deny his kingship. He simply approved of Pilate's message. I'm Jesus and I approve of this message. How did Jesus maintain such calm, such peace, such composure in the face of such brutal accusations? You know what? I confess to you, that's not easy for me. You come after me. You accuse me. And as much as I want to stay calm and prayerful and say, well, let's discuss that, brother. Let's consider this, sister. My reaction, my flesh says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I got to mount a defense here. I got to protect my name. And Jesus just maintained perfect composure, perfect calm. I guess when you know who you are, you know you have nothing to prove. And Jesus knew who he was. Jesus was, you could say, comfortable in his own spirit. He just knew himself. In fact, John tells us in John 13, verses 1 and 3, before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father. Verse 3, He knew the Father had given all things into His hands. He knew He had come forth from God and He was going back to God. Jesus knew all of this. He knew who He was. He knew what He was doing. He knew why He was there. He knew what was going to happen. And so why defend Himself? He knew it all. He had it down. Don't you wish you had that kind of quiet confidence? I believe there's only one place we can get it. The greatest confidence comes not from knowing who you are, but from knowing who you are in Jesus Christ, who knows who He is. Because I can think I know who I am, but even that gets upset from time to time. I mean, haven't you noticed? How many hats have you tried on in your life? And the older you get, the more you can look back on all the different directions and options and thoughts and and things that you've tried out to figure out who you are. And Jesus keeps saying, define yourself by me. John figured that out, the disciple whom Jesus loved. My best self-definition that brings about the most peace and the most composure and the straightest line to walk is when I define myself as belonging to Jesus. When I place myself in His hands. You know, self-confidence is honestly a sham. Because the moment you're confident in yourself, you're going to let yourself down. You cannot base your life on becoming confident in what you 
can accomplish in who you are. Christ's confidence, however, is life-saving. If I place my confidence in Him, if I put my faith or, or my trust anywhere else in the world, or even in anyone else in the world, I am bound to be disappointed and discouraged. But if I trust in Jesus, I can't, like Him, stand up in the greatest threat and accusation and know where I belong, know where I've come from, know where I'm going, know what my role is here, and it is simply to belong to Jesus. The Bible tells us, and this is an interesting passage for you, you might want to note this one, the Bible tells us trusting in anything or anyone outside of Jesus Christ is a trap. Listen to this. Micah chapter 7, verse 5. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips, husbands. Watch out for her. Verse 6. Micah 7, 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Wow. Paranoid much? But Micah the prophet is making a point here. He goes on and says, As for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Even if my own wife lets me down, Micah might say, my God will hear me. If my neighbors betray me, my God will hear me. If my friends use my words against me, my God will hear me. You see how the confidence in Jesus Christ goes far beyond even the confidence you have, brothers and sisters, in a marriage. And you know that I am pro-marriage. And I am absolutely pro a man and a woman connected in the center by Christ Jesus. But even in that situation, husbands let their wives down. I've done it. Wives let their husbands down. You know how that works. Jesus never lets us down. And Michael the prophet is not saying that we don't trust in neighbors or friends or other people, or at least that we don't love them. He's saying don't put your confidence in another human being to be more than they can be. The truth is, looking around tonight, we're a bunch of human beings, and every one of us is capable of letting the rest of us down. And I'm right at the front of that pack. So don't you dare put your confidence in me, because I'm going to let you down. I keep telling you this, and you keep having to figure it out on your own. Proverbs 3.26, The Lord will be your confidence, and He will keep your foot from being caught. You trust in the Lord. If I've said this before. If more people trusted in the Lord, less people would leave churches in a huff. If more people put their faith in Jesus, less people would find themselves offended by pastors or church leaders or other Christians. Trust in the Lord. 1 Peter 2.23, Peter says, back to Jesus now, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He knew who he was. He's Jesus Christ. He's confident. Peter says, while suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so that's what we're called to do. Entrust ourselves to Jesus. Because just as Jesus had nothing to prove, in Jesus, I've got nothing to prove. You say, but Rick, you're a sinner. Yes, I am. But I've been saved by Jesus Christ. But Rick, I've heard you do this. I probably did but I'm blood covered by Jesus Christ. And I look to Him. The success of my life, my future, 
my eternal state in Jesus, it's determined, and I am now free to live or die with and for Him. So Jesus is there before Pilate, and Pilate cannot figure him out. Number two, Jesus before Barabbas. Jesus now before Barabbas. Verse 6, Now at the feast of the Passover, Pilate used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Which one? Well, there were so many, it probably doesn't really matter. (laughs) The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's thinking he may have a way out here. For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Now, you may be familiar with the story, but think about this. How bizarre. How bizarre is this that a Roman governor is trying to save the life of a Jewish rabbi from the efforts of the Jewish leadership? Pilate, in this moment, and we see more of this in the Gospel of John, Pilate is he's trying to find a way out because he looks at Jesus, and even in his twisted Roman state, he does not understand, or he, he understands that Jesus is innocent. And so Pilate's saying, How can, there's got to be a way out of this. Oh, yes. The release the prisoner deal I do every Passover. We'll go with that one. But the chief priests have their lackeys out in the crowd and they're already stirring it up. No, we want Barabbas! We want Barabbas! Now Pilate had that custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover. It was an act of placation. Let somebody go, calm the people, we'll all get through this okay. And he wants to release this innocent Jesus, but they cry all the more for Barabbas. Where's the crowd that one week before was crying Hosanna? Where'd they go? There are lots of different thoughts or ideas, perhaps, what was going on. Perhaps Judas timed his betrayal right because he got this thing moving and then the chief priest got the ball rolling to where it was so early in the morning it was before anyone even knew what was going on. They just had, again, their lackeys. They had their yes-men there to call for Barabbas to seek the crucifixion of Jesus before those who loved Jesus, who were following Him, who were interested in Him, were even up out of bed or even knew what was happening, the crucifixion would already be underway. And Pilate, through all this, still trying to release Jesus. Verse 12, answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Him whom you call the King of the Jews? And they shouted back, Crucify Him! But Jesus said to them, Why? What evil has He done? Or Pilate, sorry, Pilate said to them, What evil has He done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify Him! And wishing to satisfy the crowd, which is always a bad idea, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, He handed Him over to be crucified. Mark doesn't tell this tell us this, Matthew, John explained more, the scourging, the whole idea of the scourging was to try and present Jesus in such a state that the crowd would feel sorry for them and say, ah, let him go. He's had enough. But even after the scourging, the cat of nine tails, I'm not going to go into that tonight, you know about that. How Jesus was whipped within an inch of his life. Even after that, the people were crying, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And give us Barabbas. Bar-Abbas. 
Barabbas, the Hebrew Barabbas, means son of the father. Bar, son of. Ava, daddy. Son of the father. Early church tradition holds that Barabbas' first name, get this, was Yeshua. Jesus Bar Abbas. Yeshua, Son of the Father. How interesting is that? That the people cry out. You've got two Yeshuas, two sons of the Father now. Barabbas, who, who fought against Rome for his own freedom and the freedom of his people. Jesus, who would be killed by Rome for our freedom. So, who do you want released? Yeshua Hamashiach or Barabbas? The people went with Barabbas. And it's always a tragic thing when people accept the false son of the Father over the true son of the Father, and it happens all the time. In fact, John put it this way. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. In 2 John 7 and 8, John writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. There are sons of the Father, or supposed sons of the Father. There are Barabbases out there who would take the place of Jesus, who the crowd would say, Oh, he's charismatic. Oh, he's righteous. Oh, he's got a good path. Oh, what about that path? Let's follow that guy. False Christ. Jesus said in John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Maybe the better question (coughs) is not who do you want released, but who would you have release you? Who would you ask to release you from your bondage, from your chains, from your death sentence? Only one can. Only Jesus. Now, something else is going on here, and many of you know the story. Sometime after Rome conquered the land, they removed Jewish sovereignty by taking away the right of capital punishment. That was kind of the final straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, that by taking away these rights and removing sovereignty, ultimately they came down and they said, you no longer have the right to commit capital punishment. That now belongs to Rome, and you have to come to Rome for that to happen. You can't do this on your own. They removed this. It was according, I believe, to Jacob's ancient prophecy. Genesis 49, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Your authority to rule, your governance, your self-governance, Jacob would say, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, until the Savior arrives. And then that scepter is going to be taken away. And what's interesting about this is by the time Rome pulled final sovereignty out from under the Jewish hands, Shiloh, Jesus, was on the scene. In fact, the day that it was announced, Jesus, at the age of 12, was in the temple. The same moment that the sovereignty was removed, capital punishment, Shiloh was already there among them. 
already there in their midst. The Savior was there. And by the way, Messiah had to come, according to prophecy, before the scepter departed. That is, before sovereignty was removed from the Jewish people. And He had to die before the city was destroyed, according to Daniel 9.27. Do you realize what a narrow window that is in history? (coughs) It's a tiny little window. And in that tiny little window, Jesus was born and died. He slipped right in. And there's no one else that was alive at the time who could fit the prophecies like Jesus did. But here's the question I have. You know about that. About this whole idea of the Jewish sovereignty of capital punishment being removed. But what about Jewish stonings? Because they were still going on. Remember at one point they took up stones to stone Jesus. At another point they take up stones and they're ready to stone the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus said, whoever's without sin among you, cast the first stone. Stonings were still going on. What about when Jesus was in Nazareth and the people of Nazareth tried to push Him off the cliff? Capital punishment. Capital punishment was still happening, gang, under the authority, under the hands, or in the hands of the Jewish people, and Rome just didn't really care. They just kind of looked the other way. It was still going on. Stephen was stoned to death. So we see that the stonings are taking place. And similar acts of Jewish capital punishment were happening. So why, if that's the case, why do the Jewish leaders take Jesus to the Romans? Why not stone Him themselves? They did with others. Why not just take Him out? Some have said, well, maybe it was because they didn't want the responsibility for it. I don't think so. They were brazen with this gang. Remember what they said? Matthew 27, 25. His blood shall be on us and our children. They didn't take him to Pilate because they wanted Rome to take responsibility. They wanted responsibility for it. Kill him. His blood on us. We take full and complete responsibility. No, they took Jesus to Pilate because they had to. Because, well, execution by crucifixion was exclusively a Roman practice and the prophets said Messiah would die by crucifixion. And the only way for Jesus to die by crucifixion was for it to be under the hand of Rome. And so the Jewish leaders unwittingly fall right into the hand of prophecy and they do exactly what the Bible said they would do. They bring Him to Rome who would crucify Him as the prophets said He would be crucified. They had to do it. Prophecy said so. Trust me, once prophecy is laid out, once God speaks the word, it's going to happen and there's no way around it. You cannot stop prophecy from happening. Why? Because God's already seen it happen. Prophecy, in essence, is just God telling us what He's already seen. It's a done deal. And the prophet said, David, Psalm 22.16, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And he wrote that before crucifixion even existed as a punishment. Isaiah, you recall this, 53 verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastening, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And I say this all the time, but don't miss, it's absolutely amazing. Isaiah said that, wrote that 700 years before this event took place. How do you know? Well, because the Spirit of Christ told him, as Peter tells us. So, Jesus here, before Pilate, now goes before Barabbas, instead of Barabbas. Because Jesus has all things well in hand, even the nails of the cross. Number three, Jesus now before the soldiers. Verse 16, the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium. And they called together the whole Roman cohort... They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling and bowing before him. Jesus before the soldiers. And we talked about this Sunday, the game of the king. The game of the king. An actual, literal game that the soldiers played with with criminals. And they now play it with Jesus, calling him King of the Jews having no idea what they were doing. Playing a game. Number four. We talked about that Sunday, so let's keep moving on. Number four is Jesus before Simon. I told you there's a large cast of characters here. Pilate, Barabbas, the soldiers, Simon. All these different people interacting in this very short amount of time with Jesus. And now Jesus goes before Simon. Verse 20, after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And again, as we talked about Sunday, Simon had no choice. Simon did not want to carry the cross. He wasn't standing on the side, raising his hand, saying, oh, pick me, pick me. He is pressed into service. He is compelled. He is forced by the Romans. He didn't ask for it. It's what was handed to him. And it may very well have saved his life. I believe it did. I believe through this experience, Simon became a Christ follower. And we talked about Sunday, how his sons are named Alexander and Rufus. Why? Well, there's a Rufus, Acts chapter 16, mentioned, referred to. Or is it Romans 16? Romans 16, referred to by Paul as he writes his letter to the Roman people. He talks about Rufus, a choice man of the Lord. And so we have this sense that, wow, okay, Rufus here, and Mark mentions him, and Rufus there in the book of Romans, son of Simon is now a choice man in the Lord, if in fact it's the same Simon, and it may very well be, and we have even more evidence. In fact, you can add this into what we talked about Sunday. We did not share this on Sunday. More possible evidence that this Simon of Cyrene became a Christ follower. Remember, as I told you, Cyrene, a city in northern Africa. Simon was an African man. And again, as the early church referred to him, as a big, burly black man. Strong, standing there on the side. And they pulled him out and said, you carry the cross. And so this this African man, the first African, I believe, of note in the Scriptures... But there's more evidence of this. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Barnabas was in Antioch, you know that. Says another name, I'll tell you in just a moment. Says Lucius of Cyrene. 
and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. But the other name listed in Acts 13.1, Simeon, who was called Niger. So what? So Simeon is the same name as Simon, Simon of Cyrene, Shermon. Simeon, Simon, Shimon, same name. The Greek word Niger means black. So we have this Simeon, Simeon that they, who was called Niger. Simeon who was called black. We have Simon of Cyrene. What are you saying, Rick? I think it's the same guy. I think it's marvelous to consider the possibility that now we have this Simon of Cyrene from that city in northern Africa, but now he is a prophet in Antioch. How cool! Why? Because he bore the cross of Christ. Because he was there. Because you cannot look at the cross without it changing you. If you will really look at the cross, it will change your life. Will you, I'll ask the question again tonight, I asked Sunday morning, will you be among those who carry the cross of Christ? Not just your cross. Man, the Lord convicted me on this one. Rick, you've carried your cross, your own faith struggles, your own Christian difficulties, your own challenges. You carry that cross. And, 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 and I'm blessing you. And I'm taking care of you through that. Are you willing to carry my cross? Are you willing to be one who bears the cross of Jesus? I think the more we understand the love of Christ, the more compelled we will be to carry the cross of Christ, no matter the cost. As Paul writes in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Just imagine, Jesus before Simon. Jesus walking that road to Calvary. In front of Him, they would be carrying the sign, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Behind Him, would follow Simon, dragging that cross, watching Jesus every step of the way. Present there at the crucifixion as they now take Jesus and nail Him to the cross that Simon bore and lift Him up in front of all people. Verse 22, And they brought Him to the place called Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. And I believe that The location discovered for this in Israel, in Jerusalem, is Golgotha today. You can stand there and look at it. It's a really interesting place. If you go into uh, just north of the old city of Jerusalem, you go into a place called the Garden Tomb, and you can walk around and up on this little area that's part of that property, because John tells us that Golgotha was connected to the place of the tomb as well. In that same place there was a garden, and you can sit up there. There's a, a place where you can kind of sit and look right out and see this rock face that looks like a skull. Now it's eroded over the years, and they have some pictures there of what it looked like, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But to stand there at Golgotha and and to look at it, and it two eyes, a nose, a mouth, it looks like the skull, Golgotha. Now below it. Unfortunately, sits an Arab bus station. <laughs> and the first time, perhaps for some of you, the first time I sat there and, and looked at it, I just I wanted to be in that place of devotional solitude. You know? 
by the way, not by the way, not by Smog rolling up, and it's like, <laughs> it's Golgotha, isn't that great? Can we move on, you know? And at first it kind of bummed me out, because I want to spend some time there, but it's just loud and, and busy, and buses coming in and out, and you know the sound of the bus engines, those diesel engines, <laughs> heading out there, and it's like, wow, man, so much for Golgotha. But it's perfect. It's perfect. A place for the cross to have stood right above the clamor and the noise of humanity lost. And if you look at it in that way and you realize the people at the foot of the cross, the noise and the pollution and the problems and the in and the out and the busyness, and the cross stands above that and calls us out of that to where Jesus is, it's a remarkable thought. And now when I go back and see Golgotha, I like to tarry there a little longer and I listen for those horns to honk and I think this is exactly the way it should be. It's Jesus before the world. Number five. Jesus before the world. Jesus said in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Even out of a crummy, noisy bus station, I will draw all men to myself. Remember what Jesus said and the boys sang to conclude Passover, most likely that final hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives just the previous evening at Psalm 118. Just listen for a moment to what words were coming out of the mouth of Christ, if perhaps, and we don't know absolutely, but pretty certain, because this was the traditional, the Hallel hymns were what they sang through the Passover, ending with this one. Listen to what he may have been singing. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. Why bees? Making stinging remarks. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, or literally so that I fell. You pushed me violently so that I fell. What happened as Jesus was bearing the cross? Before Simon would pick it up and carry it for him, he would collapse under the weight of it. You pushed me so I fell. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting. And salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Down in verse 22 of Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. By the way, O Lord, do save. What is that? It's Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. What's He talking about? The Passover lamb. Bind it to the altar. Sacrifice it to the Lord. You are my God and I give thanks to You. You are my God and I extol You. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His loving kindness is everlasting. And Jesus singing those very words, astounding. Amazing how this all comes together. 
and Jesus singing again that He is the chief cornerstone. The rejected cornerstone. That's interesting because Golgotha is now the side of a hill. And the area between Golgotha and the Temple Mount, originally it would have run as a ridge. I've told you before, Mount Moriah is a ridge that runs through the center of Jerusalem. And so from the Temple Mount, it would have run right on up to Golgotha. But now, from the edge of the Temple Mount, you have to go down and it's all flattened out. And again comes to that bus station. And then Golgotha juts up as a sheer face. But what happened? Why is it that way topographically now? Because that area right before Golgotha became was used as a quarry. That's where the stones were quarried and brought over and used to build up around the temple. To use in the temple. The chief cornerstone would have come from the quarry at Golgotha. And Jesus says... The chief cornerstone has been rejected by the builders. Amazing. 